Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Galatians, the fourth chapter. Today we're going to be looking at Galatians 4, 1 through 11, and I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible, and I invite you to follow along in whatever version you have in hand this morning. I'm fond of remembering what I read from the pen of a man by the name of G. Campbell Morgan, a great man of God who lived in the latter part of the 19th and the first half of the 20th century, he said we're no closer than the true Word of God than when we simply read the words. So let us never take a moment like this for granted or treat it lightly, but let us listen for the voice of God in the words that we're going to read. Now I say as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the Father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law that he might receive, we rather, might receive the adoption of sons, because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Every true follower of Jesus Christ has a before story and an after story. E. Stanley Jones, the great missionary statesman of last century, told about his before story. He became a new creation in Christ as a student. He said at the time he was near the bottom of his class, and as Christ came to indwell him, it suddenly occurred to him that it would not be becoming of a follower of Christ to be at the bottom of his class. And therefore, he applied himself to study, not so that he would be noticed, but so that he could better represent the Lord because he knew that he had a goal of glorifying God and he knew if he applied himself, he would be more useful to the Lord. By the end of that year, as a student, he had risen almost to the top of his class, from the bottom to the top during the course of his first year as a follower of Jesus Christ. In his book, The Divine Yes, Dr. Jones tells the story of a man whom he knew who came to Christ. This man was a very irritating and irritable man. He was not a pleasant person to be around, and especially not in his home. He was so grouchy and so gruff that so the man's testimony went that his dog would go hide when he heard him coming into the house. And his dog never escorted him to the door as he left, as the dog was eager to receive and see that man's wife out when she left. He said something 
happened after he received Christ. He said the dog started to eagerly await his return when he heard the car drive in to the driveway and met him with great joy. And the dog would follow him to the door when he sensed that his master was leaving. There was a change that even a beast could sense in the man. This reminds me of what church history reports from the first decade of the 20th century. In Wales, there was a great spiritual awakening. And in that part of the world, as you probably know, coal mining is a major industry. The coal miners who came to Jesus in hundreds and thousands of people came to Christ during this time. Many of these coal miners, most of them actually came to know Christ, and they were radically changed. They were so changed that these coal miners who would curse like a sailor at their beasts of burden who would go down into the depths of the earth and bring the coal up by cart, they would be cursed to get them to do their work. The donkeys quit responding to their urging because they didn't use swear words anymore. They were changed. Not the donkeys, but the men. Even the beasts know when people are changed. Do you have an after story? If you don't, maybe you really have not met Christ. Because when a person meets Jesus Christ, that person is fundamentally changed. And it shows in the way in which he or she behaves. In this passage, in a very general way, Paul teaches us our before and our after story and then poses a question. This passage neatly divides into three parts. The first of which is, once we were slaves. That's verses 1 through 3. The second part, verses 4 through 7, now we are children of God. And the last part, verses 8 through 11, have to do with a question which Paul posed to the Galatian church. And in effect, the Spirit of God poses to us today. And that is, why would we turn back to live as slaves again since we are now children of God? Let's begin with the first part, verses 1 through 3. Once we were slaves. All of us who know Jesus, we were in fact slaves. Look what he says here in verse 1. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. The word owner actually is the word Lord. And perhaps the New American Standard Version translators did not use the word Lord out of reverence for the Lord, but actually that's the word, the Lord of everything. Although he was a slave, he was the Lord of everything. That sounds contradictory, doesn't it? We're going to see what that means in just a moment. Verse 2, But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the Father. Let me do some interpreting here. The picture which is painted is the picture that was quite common among the upper class in Greco-Roman society. It was the rule of the day that when a man of means had a son who was his heir, his firstborn, that man would assign two individuals to that boy to make sure 
that he matured properly. So when the set time came, that time which is referred to as the date set by the father, for that child to come into his inheritance, the boy would be ready. These two categories, guardians on the one hand and managers on the other hand. Today, if I were to go into a probate court in the county of El Paso, the state of Texas, and appeal for guardianship of an individual, there would be three types of guardianships that I might appeal to the court for regarding another person. One could be the guardianship of the person that I would have the opportunity and the obligation to be the one who governs the decision-making and the activities of an individual. Let me apply this to this passage of Scripture. The guardian in question here would be an individual who would tell the boy under his authority when to go to bed, when to get up, what to eat, when to eat, when to study, when to do chores. This boy, even though, as the Scripture says, is an heir is the Lord of everything, is no better than a slave because he has no legal rights, no property rights. He is a person who in theory owns it all, but in practicality doesn't. Why? Because the date his father has set for him has yet to come. In that same court of law in El Paso, Texas, I could ask for guardianship of the estate, which means... I would be the one who would be responsible for the property of the individual whom the court might award guardianship to me for. Well, that's what these managers in question were. Not only did a wealthy Roman citizen who had a son who was being led and governed, as it were, in matters pertaining to his person, the guardian, the word which is used here, also had managers or stewards who governed the affairs of that young man's estate until that young man reached the point of maturity, moving from minority to majority based upon the will of the father, the date which had been set by the father for the son. There is a rather recent illustration of this from Great Britain. The Duke and Duchess of Northumberland in 1999 went to court to extend the minority of their son, Percy, Earl Percy of Northumberland. And this young man, at the age of 14, only had four years separating him from the moment when he, in one instant, when he reached majority, this young man would have received ownership of a magnificent castle. Also, one million pounds sterling as his inheritance. And the promise of over a half million dollars a year for the rest of his life. Why? Because he was the son of the Duke of Northumberland. Well, the courts of Great Britain awarded his parents guardianship over his estate. And it was not until he was 25 that he got access. The reason they did it is because they had witnessed what had happened to other young men or young women who were of royal descent. And when they reached their legal age of majority, 
had squandered their resources. They were not ready for it, yet the time had not come. So these parents of Earl Percy of Northumberland, and I don't know what's happened to him, by the way, since this happened. I should have done my research a little more. But the point being is, it was postponed until the date set by the courts and his parents. In El Paso, Texas, I could go and ask for guardianship of the person and the property at the same time, whereas an individual can do that in our legal system. In this day and time, there were two different kinds of people who were given that responsibility so that the child remained a slave, in effect, until the date set by the father. Now look at verse 3, and this shows what this has to do with you and me. So also we, those three innocent-sounding words are so important. Paul uses an illustration out of everyday life among the upper class of the Greco-Roman world to illustrate what is true of us. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage. We were slaves is what he was saying. Isn't that true? If you didn't know it, you need to be aware of it. You, if you know Christ, before you came to Christ, you were in bondage. He goes on to explain under whose bondage? The elemental things of the world. Pause with me just a moment. This phrase, elemental things of the world, was used in three ways in the time of Paul. It was used, first of all, in a general sense to refer to the alphabet of the day. It was secondarily used, and this is found in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, to the basic rules of a religion. And thirdly, it was used to describe the basic spirits in the world. Three different ways in which it was used. The way it would be used in reference to people who were descendants of Abraham, and remember, some of those descendants were teaching falsely to the Galatians. They were saying, unless you add to the work of Christ by being circumcised, you are not a true, full-fledged follower of Christ. They were adding something to, I repeat, the work of Jesus Christ. Now, the ABCs of Jewish religion are found in the law, the law of Moses. And for 1,300 years, the people who were descendants of Abraham labored and languished in elementary school, if you'll, maybe even kindergarten. They just learned their ABCs. Think with me a moment. If you were my age and you found yourself into a library and all you had ever done was say your ABCs, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and you found yourself in a library, and all you were doing just reciting ABCs, ABCs. You're so proud of yourself. Is it true when we can say our ABCs we're so proud of ourselves? Can you say your ABCs? I hope you can. But why are we given the ABCs so we can read and so we can compose? So the Jews were given the law, and the law is good. We know that. That's what Paul writes in Romans chapter 7. The law is good. There's nothing wrong with the law. The law is useful. Why did God give us the law? We saw this in the third chapter of Galatians. The law is designed to create a deep sense of urgent necessity in our hearts that we need something 
outside of ourselves to help us get right with God. The law is designed to drive us to dependence upon the Lord, acknowledging there's nothing we can do to make ourselves right. So, those who were in the audience who first heard Galatians 4 read, who were descendants of Abraham, who had been raised in Judaism, they had been held in bondage under the law of Moses. But the population of the churches in Galatia was probably weighted more heavy in the direction of those who came out of a pagan background. The New Testament calls those people Gentiles, non-Jewish people. If you will, look at verse 8. However, at that time, when we were still slaves, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are no gods. This goes to the third way in which the word, the elemental things of the world is used. Remember, basically it's the alphabet. Secondly, it's the basic tenets, teachings of a religion as the law of Moses was within Judaism. And then thirdly, it had to do with the elements that were worshipped. Have you ever noticed how many of the gods and goddesses of Greece and Rome were having to do with the earth or the air or with fire or with wind, with nature. And these people who had become followers of Jesus, who made up the churches in Galatia, they had labored as slaves under those false gods. Demons lay behind those false gods. Paul writes about that in the book of 1 Corinthians. So, what do we know about ourselves before we came to follow Jesus. We were slaves. Slaves under the law. Now here's the question. And if you're thinking, some of you have asked this question. And you're right to ask it. The question is, I thought the Bible teaches that we are slaves to sin before we come to know Jesus. And you are spot on in that thought. We are slaves to sin, but... Consider what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. What empowers sin to be a sting to us? It's the law. In Romans 4.15, Paul writes, Where there is no law, there is no violation. It's impossible. So the law has been given, as I've said already, to make us aware that we need someone to save us from our sin because we are incapable of doing that for ourselves. And so the law is the thing which we're under, and we know the power of sin is the law itself. So we were slaves. That's our before story. That's true of all of us. We were slaves of law and also sin. We were slaves. But now what is true of us? We are children of God. Verses 4 and following yield that beautiful piece of information. Verse 4 begins, But when the fullness of the time came, this is a reference 
to the ripened condition of the world to receive the Messiah, to receive Jesus. It's known, this era is known as the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Rome had conquered all the known world to speak of by this time, and there were great things which occurred as a result. There was a sense of security. Wherever one went, as long as one was not in opposition to the Roman law and authority, there was a sense of ease and safety which accompanied one's travel. There were the Roman roads. You've read about them probably. You may remember from a class you had in Roman history or world history. And what we would know is that those roads were safe to travel because of the Roman army. You wouldn't mess with people like you would have before because of the roads and the way in which they were patrolled and therefore protected by the Roman army. This was a tailor-made situation, by the way, for the gospel to come. Notice what it says in verse, when the fullness and the New American Standard gets it right, probably some of your translations simply say, when the fullness of time came. The insertion of the word the is because the word the appears. It was the time. It was the time set not by an earthly father for his child to move from a place of minority to majority. Rather, it was the time set by the heavenly father for those whom he had chosen in Christ before the creation of the world to be part of his family. The time had come for those who had been under the law or who had been under the aegis of these false gods of Greco-Roman world, the pagan gods, for them to become mature people. The time. It was the Pax Romana. People's hearts were ready. The pagan part of the culture. The Gentile part. We know this because we have the benefit of archaeologists have exhumed many of the graveyards and looked at the stones and the epitaphs. And the epitaphs are filled with statements of hopelessness People were hopeless. And who is Jesus? Jesus has come that we might have life and have it more abundantly. We might have life after this life that's even greater than the abundant life which we experience now. That we might have hope. Christ is our hope. And as Paul writes in Ephesians 2, people without Christ are without God and without hope in the world. Are you hopeless today? Then the good news for you is with Christ, You have everything you need for hope in your life. And even the descendants of Abraham, they were burdened, burdened by the laws, rules, and regulations that had been heaped upon them by those who sat in the seat of Moses, most of whom were Pharisees, who tied up these heavy loads and placed them on the spiritual backs of the people of Israel and didn't lift a little finger to lighten their load. They just kept piling on and piling on so that their hearts were ready to receive the gospel, this freeing message. Well, let's see what happened in the fullness of time. God sent two persons. First of all, He sent His Son. The Scripture says He sent forth His Son. That word sent forth is loaded with meaning. 
It was a word which was always, if it was used, it was always used in this way. The sending forth of a person with authority. It was conferred authority. God the Father sent Jesus Christ the Son with authority. And the fact that God the Father sent Him forth indicates He came out of heaven, which indicates He is God, co-eternal, co-equal with God the Father. He came out of heaven in submission to the Father to accomplish the mission that He gave to Him. We're going to look at there are two aspects of this mission which are mentioned in this passage. We'll see them in just a moment. God sent forth His Son with authority. God the Son, not just the Son of God, Jesus is, and that He's born of a woman. This is critically important. Born of a woman, that speaks of the humanity of Jesus. Jesus, fully God, but also fully man. Two natures in one man, a miracle. And by the way, He had to become a man. He had to be God as the emissary of the Son of God, but He also had to be a human being because of what His mission was, as we're going to see in just a moment. Born of a woman. Now notice the next phrase. What happened in the fullness of the time? God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. He was born to a Jewish mother. Mary was her name. He was born to a Jewish nation, a true descendant physically of Abraham. And he was born under the Jewish law. This Jewish law, Jesus kept. He kept the dietary laws. He kept the ceremonial laws. He kept the moral law. Jesus himself said, I did not come to destroy the law of the prophets. I came to fulfill, not destroy. And Jesus had to be a man, and he had to be a flawless, perfect man in order that he could fulfill his mission of replacing us on the cross to take our punishment for us. So that as he was finishing his work on the cross, he says, it is finished. I have paid for the sin of the world by what I have done. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that God the Father made Jesus the Son to become sin on our behalf in order that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Do you see why Jesus had to be sent forth from God, born of a woman, and born under the law? And these are the two purposes of God's sending forth His Son. I've already touched on the first one, but it needs to be considered just a bit further. Look at verse 5. The first purpose, so that He might redeem those who were under the law. The Lord saw us as slaves under the law. The law was given to show us our inability to keep the law perfectly and frustrate us and cause us to have a sense of urgent necessity to find a way whereby we can be made right with God. We couldn't find a way. As hard as we might try, we could not find a way. We might have tried to be perfect in the keeping of the law, only to be frustrated in our efforts. Do you know what? If I tried to make myself right with God... If I tried to cross every T and dot every I in the law of God, I would fail if I had a million lifetimes to try. 
Do you know there's not enough ink in the universe to cross every T and dot every I of the law of God for you and me as fallen human beings? But what was impossible for us was possible for God. Because God incarnated Himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus lived a perfect life. And He went to the cross and He died. He became a curse for us by being hanged on a tree. It was a picture of His being cursed by none other than God the Father Himself. So that you and I could be bought back, redeemed from the law and from sin. He goes on to say, There's a second purpose, not only that we be redeemed, but that we might receive the adoption as sons. There are people in this room who have been adopted in the natural realm. Both of my children are adopted. I love them. I've wondered if I had a natural-born child, if I would have been torn to love the natural-born child more than my adopted children. But I've talked to parents who have a natural born and an adopted child. And always the answer I get is the same. I don't ever think about it. I love them the same. It's awesome. The adoption which is mentioned here and which was practiced within Roman legalities was somewhat different. It was an adoption which normally occurred when a well-to-do Roman would adopt usually one of his male slaves, and that male, because of the male-dominated culture, would become the heir. Immediately would move from a status as a slave, if that were the case, and be purchased and made a one who would be his son, experiencing all the benefits of a natural-born son because of the concern and love that that human father had for that child. We have received the adoption as sons. Do you know what happens to us? Read Ephesians 1 carefully, beginning with verse 3, where it says, In love He adopted us to be His children. It was a function of the love of God the Father to adopt us. And everything that pertains to Jesus Christ now pertains to you and to me. Colossians chapter 2, 3 says that all the wealth that is found in the person of Christ is mine and it's yours because of our position in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just consider a few things that are written by Paul elsewhere. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, he talks about how we have the riches of the kindness of God at our disposal. In Romans 11:33 and following he speaks about how we have the riches of all the wisdom and knowledge that is found in Christ. In the book of Ephesians 1:7 and 2:7 and this is probably the umbrella under which all these other riches fall. We have the riches of his grace. They have been lavished upon us. The riches of his grace. In Philippians 4:19 we're fond of claiming this, that my God shall supply all your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Actually, the wording should be the riches of His glory. We have the glory in all its grandeur. The glory of God in Christ Jesus is ours. 
Why? Because we have been adopted. has nothing to do with anything you and I could ever do. It has everything to do with the grace and mercy of God. Look at verse 6. Because you are sons, this is the second sending. First of all, whom did God send? He sent forth His Son. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. Stop right there. The word translated sent forth in verse 6 is the same word translated sent forth in verse 2. We're big on the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ, and we should be. But we do not give enough attention to the incarnation with the little eye of the Spirit of the Son of God in us by the Holy Spirit. God sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The Spirit of Jesus cries out from our spirit, Abba, Father. We know what the word Abba means. It was the word of the home when Jesus began to talk, speaking to Joseph, his foster father. He would say, Abba, Abba, which would be the equivalent today of Papa or Dada, Daddy. To the day my father died, he was 87 years old, I was 60 years old when he passed away. To the day that he died, I never remember calling him Father to his face. I would speak of him as my father. But when I'd speak to him, it was always Daddy. It was not Dad. It was Daddy. When I'd write a letter to him, it was Dear Daddy. We had that kind of relationship. That is a picture of the kind of relationship, and it is an improper picture, but it's the best I know to appeal to, of the relationship we are to have with our Heavenly Father. He is our Abba. It's the picture of intimacy of a child and a parent. Abba, Mama, Dada. But it's more than that. A careful study of the usage of this Aramaic word Abba yields this piece of information. Not only did it speak of intimacy between a person and God, but it also spoke of great respect. In the Lord's prayers, we call it, how does it begin? Our Father who art in heaven. And Jesus' primary language would have been Aramaic. He had three languages at least, Aramaic, Hebrew, the language of the synagogue, Greek, the language of the world. He knew all those languages, but in the home he would have spoken Aramaic. That would have been his mother tongue, the first language he would have heard, and he heard it most often. It was the one he was most comfortable with, probably. So when he was teaching his disciples, our Father who art in heaven, he was saying, our Abba. He was speaking of Father in endearing terms, in familiar terms. But then he does not stop. What does he go on to say? Who art in heaven? He speaks of the intimacy which we as children of God have with our Father. But also he speaks of the infinite nature of that God. We're to have great respect for God. When we say Abba, Father, that is our way of referring to Him. Now, some of you have already thought of another way that Paul uses this idea of Abba, Father. It's found in Romans 8, 15. And the Scripture says this. You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons 
by which we cry out. And the idea of crying out is an intense crying out. Abba, Father. And so how do we square these two things? Here in Galatians 4, verse 6, Paul is teaching that the Spirit of the Son, the Spirit of Jesus is in us, and that Spirit cries, Abba, Father. Where is that Spirit? That Spirit's in us, right? And we are body, that's obvious. We are souls. That is, we have a mind, we have a will, we have emotions. But we are a spirit. And our spirit is inhabited when we become new people. This is where the new life comes. This is where the real change is set. It's inside of us because it's the place where Christ by His Spirit dwells in us. You say, how does that work, Mike? Well, it is a mystery. But I know it's true. I know it's true because the Bible teaches it. But I also know it's true because I have experienced it. Have you ever had the opportunity to watch a blacksmith forge and fashion a piece of metal into a horseshoe? When the blacksmith puts his gloves on, takes the tongs, gets a piece of metal, prepares it, then begins to put it into the fire, heated very hot, holds it into the fire... When it first goes in, it's just a piece of old, cold metal, isn't it? But before long, if you're watching it carefully, what happens? It begins to glow. And there's a merging of the fire with the metal. That is an illustration of what happens in you and me. When God sent His Son to live in our spirit, there was this merging of our spirit with His Spirit. We're not divine, but we are partakers, the Bible says in Second Peter chapter 1, of the divine nature. So that when Christ is described in this passage in Galatians as crying out, Abba, Father, that's exactly what He does. And we join Him in crying out from our spirit, Abba, Father. Speaking of our great respect for our Father, but also the incredible intimacy we have with our Father. Philip Ryken in his book on Galatians, talks about his relationship with his daughter. Still at the time of the writing of the book, able to sit in his lap, still a little girl. And he said he was fond of leaning over and whispering into his daughter's ear, you will always be my special daughter. And he said that on most occasions she would respond by pulling his head down and putting her mouth at his ear and say, you are my special daddy. We have that kind of relationship with God. We are his special children. And he is our special father. He's our father. Look at verse 7. Therefore, you are no longer slave. May I stop here just a moment? Until this point, the word you in the passage is in the plural, but here, for good reason, Paul switches to the singular. Therefore, you as an individual are no longer a slave, but a son, or in the case of the females in the congregation, a daughter. And if a son or daughter, then an heir through God. You are no longer a slave individual. This is a personal message for us. What were we before Christ? We were slaves, were we not? Under bondage to law and sin. But what are we now? We are children of God and therefore heirs. And this little phrase, which seems so incidental 
the end of verse 7, through God. You know what it means? Through the gracious act of God. So now let's move on to the last part of the message. If we are no longer slaves, and we're not, and if we are children of God, and we are, then why would we even consider going back to being slaves under the law? That's what Paul is dealing with here. Look at verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? In other words, going back to the law. Why would you do such a thing? Well, here's the answer to that question. It's because our flesh, the term that's used by Paul repeatedly to describe human personality apart from the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit, our selfish flesh loves to express itself in pride. And one of the ways that we feel pride is when we think we can add anything to what God has done to our salvation. And what is being said by Paul here is this, that it's a tragedy to move from a place of freedom as a child of God back into a life of external formalism. Another word for that would be legalism. Thinking that by doing religious things, we can gain more credibility with God. We can gain a higher place in His affection. That is just not true. It is a lie of the devil. When I received Christ, He adopted me as His Son, God the Father did, and everything that was true of Christ is true of me in terms of what is mine. I've been blessed. I know I'm being redundant. It's worth repeating with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And you have too if you're a child of the Lord. Verse 10, he says, You observe days. This is reference to the Sabbath days, probably. And months. This is reference to new moon observance. Festivities within the law of Moses. Seasons. This probably refers to Passover, Pentecost, and also tabernacles. Those were the three festivals that all men, 21 years of age and older, were responsible to observe. And years. Probably a reference to the sabbatical year and the year of Jubilee. You observe all these things thinking that by observing them, you improve your position in relationship to God. It's just not true. It's not true. And if any of us depend upon anything, I'm not talking simply about these observance of certain days and feasts. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about anything we think we do to improve our position with the Lord. It's false. It's not true. We have everything we need and more in Christ. And look at the last thing. He says, I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. He feared for them. He said, it's dangerous. Maybe you really don't know the Lord. Maybe you're not different, is what he's saying. He was a big believer in the perseverance of the saints. You can't read Paul without knowing that. But in his own mind, and he, he's being real, real here. He's saying, I fear for you that I've labored in vain in all I've done. Let me finish 
with two questions that are vital to you and to me. What is the Christian life, really? That's the first question. And how can we live the Christian life? The answer to the first question, what is the Christian life? It's a life lived as sons and daughters of God, not as slaves. It's a life that's lived in freedom. Freedom from the tyranny of guardians and managers. Freedom from the tyranny of Satan as he tells us we're not worth a hoot and just lambasts us and condemns us. It's, a, it's freedom. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's a life that is a life that is a life of knowing God which, as Jesus says in John 17, 3, is what real eternal life is. That they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. A life of light and not darkness, knowing the Lord, not of ignorance, but of the knowledge of the Lord. That's the kind of life. Do you know, there are many people, maybe even in this room, who are people who are... Um, very religious, but they have no life in their lives. The thing about legalism that's so tricky is that we like legalism because to the outward observer, that person who works hard and does so many things for the Lord and people see it and people pat them on the back and say nice things to their face and nice things about them when they're not in the room, those people many times don't even know the Lord. I'm not saying we shouldn't do the works of God. We're to do the works. That's what Jesus says. Let us work the works of Him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. And earlier in the book of John, He says, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom, who sent me. Believe in the Lord. That's, it's a work of faith. So don't mishear what I'm saying. What we need to understand is, we are slaves of Christ. But it's a different kind of slavery. Remember what Jesus said. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let me stop here just a moment. The word translated weary, come to me all who work to the point of exhaustion. That's what it means. Have you worked your spiritual fingers to the bone to the point of exhaustion? Thinking that if you do that, It'll improve your chances of getting into heaven. It'll make you a better Christian. Forget about it. It's wasted. Come to Jesus. You who have worked to the point of exhaustion, come to the Lord Jesus Christ and take His yoke upon you and learn from Him. For He is gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. And He concludes that part by saying this, my yoke is easy. You know what that word literally means? My yoke is comfortable. It's pleasant. And my burden is light. When I follow Jesus Christ, hey, I want to be his slave. I'm his son. But I'll tell you what, if my dad ever asked me to do something, I was ready to do whatever my father asked. I love serving my parents. I loved it because I knew how much they loved me, and the older I got, the more I appreciated what they had done for me. It's true, isn't it? So, what is the Christian life? 
It's living the life out as a child of God, not as a slave. Here's the second question. How do we live the Christian life? This is a much more complex question, but I'm only going to deal with one facet of it. Remember who you are. Who are you? You are a child of God. That's who you are. You're a servant, yes, but primarily you are first and foremost a child of God who is a servant of the Lord, not primarily servant and then child. Please bear that in mind. You know how we can ensure that we remember this? We remember it this way. We remember it, that's why we read the Bible all the time, because the Bible is like a mirror. It reflects things that are not common to those who are children of God, but it tells us a lot about God. It's a book about God mainly. It's not a book about us. That reflects a real weakness in our thinking theologically. It's about God. That's the, it's the story of God and His plan. And we happen to be part of His plan, our salvation, our redemption. Remember who you are. Some of you know the name John Newton. He wrote Amazing Grace. At the age of seven, he was orphaned. At the age of 11, he was indentured to the captain of a slave ship that went back and forth between Great Britain and other points to Africa to buy and trade slaves. By the time he was 23, according to his biographer, he had done unmentionable things, great atrocities in the trade of African slaves. He was a man who was a godless man. He had plumbed the depths of sin despicability and degradation. And on March the 10th, 1748, en route from Africa back to Great Britain, he found him and his shipmates in a ferocious storm in the Atlantic. And he thought for sure his time had come as a 23-year-old. And he cried out, cried, pleading for mercy from, the God, from God. And God changed him that moment. He was a different man. He devoted the rest of his life to sharing Christ with people. He became a priest, preached the gospel through the Anglican church, wrote lots of hymns, not just Amazing Grace, but lots of hymns. And this is what he kept over his study. He had a part of Deuteronomy 15:15, which says, remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt but the Lord your God redeemed you. He needed that. Think of all the ugly, awful things he had done to other human beings. Think about it. He had blasphemed God. Think about it. Would that haunt a man? Why, sure it would. But he remembered that he was redeemed and he was adopted as a son of God. What about your past? Is there a lot of garbage in your past? If you're redeemed... God has forgotten that. The devil's the one who plays havoc with you, continually bringing up. And I'm not trying to make any light thinking to prevail about sin. It's awful. But that's what Christ has done by dying for us. As we read about Mephibosheth, it's a wonderful story, isn't it? This son, this crippled son of Jonathan, he'd been crippled when his nursemaid tried to protect him from what she thought might be his death. 
when David took over the throne. And as she was trying to escape, she fell with him and evidently fell on his feet and they were both crippled. And as the story goes, did you catch what David said to Ziba? He said, is there anyone in the house of Saul, anyone in the house of Saul that I can show the kindness of God to? Yes, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan. And so the Lord blessed that man. And what does the text teach us about the place that was given to Mephibosheth at the king's table? He sat side by side with the sons of the king. You and I, if we're in Christ, we sit side by side with the king of kings, the son of God. This is good news. This is great news. And if you don't know Christ, give your life to Christ and see what happens. You'll have an after story of what God has done in contrast to a life that has been lived in bondage to sin and to the law. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would minister by your Spirit to each of our hearts and remind us to the point that we regularly review who we were coupled with who we are and that we would resolve today. And I pray that you would ask this of the Lord right now. Lord, please help me to resolve never to turn back to external formalism and legalism. Today, Lord, I want to go on record to repent of my sin of self-righteousness. And I humbly yet gladly embrace your righteousness, Lord Jesus. Thank you for putting me in right standing with the Father, not simply as a servant, but as a son or a daughter. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.